Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Horseport Ireland podcast. I'm John Kyle and each fortnight we'll be bringing you interviews with equestrian experts and of course our Irish athletes. The Horseport Ireland podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts so you can subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you haven't already, check out our previous shows. This time I'm once again in conversation with William Micklem talking inventions, access to the sport at all levels and taking the temperature of the sport of eventing at the high performance level today. William, as we continue our conversation, I wanted to focus in on a word, simplicity. It seems to embody your ethos, and that applies to your inventions as well, doesn't it? Simplicity is, it relates to all areas of horsemanship. Horseware and I have just brought out a new girth, which again, it's simplicity is the, is the key thing, and it's designed from the inside out, because most girths are not designed on the shape of the horse's rib cage. And so just like my bridle is like it's, it's the simplicity in action, I set out deliberately to produce a more simple form of bridle, which initially confused people, ironically, briefly. But now any young person using my bridle will turn to a traditional bridle and think, oh, that's too complicated. Well, let's start with that. Let's talk about the bridle. This is really interesting because the bridle seems relatively unchanged since the time of maybe Xenophon and the ancient Greeks. So... What led you to think that it needed improvement? Was it observation? Was it scientific research? Was it gut instinct? Well, it was much more than a gut instinct, John, because I remember, again, my father, he was passionate about all aspects of horses, and we had every break in a riding session. You did something about stable management, which when repeated, you know, is the easiest way to learn. And one of the things that I learned early on was when my father talked about the fact that the upper jaw teeth in a horse were so much wider than the lower jaw molar teeth. And they're that way because a horse and a horse masticate, but it eats, it does a rotational movement from side to side and to grind the food. But of course, when you look at the horse's face, you see it all looks totally smooth on the outside. But as soon as you look at a horse's skull, just the bones of the head, you see that the vast majority of horses have about half an inch to three-quarters of an inch wider the upper jaw than the lower jaw. And then it's fine if you don't wear any nosebands whatsoever, but then the fashion came that we all wore these uh, tight nosebands, and you put pressure um, uh, over the flesh, over the skin that goes over the protruding outside edge of the upper jaw, and you make the horse uncomfortable inside of its mouth because of that. And then I discovered about the nerves in the horse's head and I discovered that um, the main motor and sensory nerves come out of a, a hole, for want of a better word, just underneath um, the, 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 where we put the noseband, which we have these awful crank nosebands. And therefore, putting pressure on that nerve um, will mean that you're actually making the nerves around the lower part of the face numb. And where the, the lower part of the face is, is the bit. So you're actually numbing the area where the bit is, particularly if the horse fights in any way, it struggles in any way with the pressure of the noseband or the bit, actually numbing the area and making the horse less sensitive because of using cranked nosebands. So, and I was also aware because I was shown at an early age by my father about how the South Americans taught their horses to ground tie, that the nerves at the top of the head are very sensitive. So I wanted to produce a bridle that didn't have that problem at the top of the head, didn't have a little narrow nose band strap underneath the headpiece, 
and I wanted to produce a bridle that didn't have the pressure on the molar teeth, didn't have the pressure on the nerves, and so I came up with the nickel bridle. So I came up with it in about the 1980s, um, and uh, actually the first the first prototype I did was very similar to what was now being sold, but I then went through all the, the process of trying it in different ways, changing everything to see whether there was any, any way you could improve it. Um, uh, but I couldn't get anybody to be interested in it and take it on commercially. And as you know yourself, the problem with the vast majority of inventors is, you know, you, you just don't have the capital to take, bring a product to market. And um, uh, just into just over the 200, Tom McGuinness of Horseware Ireland took an interest in it and was brave enough to bring it to the market, I think in 2006 or 2008, and it won straight away, it won the Innovation Award at the big uh, beta uh, um, trade conference. And um, it's just gone from strength to strength. And undoubtedly, it's a small miracle worker. And lot, there are lots of imitations and lots of people trying to do things similar. And, and actually, that's a huge plus as far as I'm concerned, because it made People are now more aware of the horse's comfort uh, in the head, and they're more aware of, of how the skull is shaped. And uh, that's, uh, you know, it's, it, it thrills me. And so it should. You should be rightly proud of what you've achieved with that. It's been a real innovation. You mentioned also that you were working with horseware on a girth, applying some of the same thinking and principles. I mean, you as a horseman know that the horse's rib cage is, is not done just like a... a a, a roll of sweets with the same dimensions at the top and the same dimensions at the bottom. And it, as a result of the horse's ribcage being a, a narrower in front than it is behind where the girth goes, that's why the girth straps on the vast majority of horses get stretched unevenly. I'm sure you're aware of either the front or the back strap. Um, and it's initially what tends to happen is that the uh, back strap gets stretched and then you do the front strap up to match it and then it, that one gets stretched because it's slightly tighter than the back one and so it goes on. But that is all because there isn't even pressure on both girth straps. So the Micklin girth is organized so that you will have even pressure on both girth straps, which means also that you will have less, less slippage, more comfort to the horse. So it's, again, like the bridle, it's very simple, but it really, truly works. So another simple and effective solution. Is there anything else in the pipeline at the moment, William? We've also got, uh, we're always getting upset by horses that damage them, the nerves on the top of their head when pulling back. And people say, well, my horse has never pulled back. Well, it only takes seconds for a horse to pull back and they break the bridle or break the head collar. Uh, and people don't realise that, in fact, in the face of the, that period of time, when the horse you know, can generate such forces on the top of their head, they cause long-term damage. Sometimes it creates head shakers in the same way that pressure on those nerves I was talking about creates head shakers. So I've produced something simple, a head collar, but the head collar is designed in such a way so that when the first pressure comes on the horse's head, there is give, there's elasticity, so there isn't that immediate pressure. So little things like that are, are important to me because you're talking all the time about being more humane to our horses, being better to our horses so that they can be happy athletes. So we've got a bridle, we've got a girth, we've got a head collar. There's an obvious missing link here, which is probably one of the most complicated devices, is it? It's certainly one that can cause a lot of problems if incorrectly used. Have you any thoughts on the saddle? 
Yeah, it's it's something that has occupied my mind for many years, and I have made some prototypes of different saddles, and I we had to come at it from aspect of both the rider and the horse. And from the point of view of the rider, we have a real problem that that so many people ride horses that are too big for them, and that the the the, the right size for a person is is to have their knee at the widest point of the horse. If the knee is at the widest point of the horse, then it makes, or even slightly underneath, but slightly lower than the widest point of the horse, then it, it makes life very easy and you feel much safer. But the vast majority of riders who are female and smaller are riding horses that are too big for them. Therefore, their knee comes higher than the widest point of the saddle. And that produces problems of stability and therefore of balance and affects people's riding. And I was, I looked, uh, a wonderful website produced all, all the photographs from the recent event at Bicton College last weekend. I think they had over 1,000, 1,100 horses competing and they had all the photographs online that you could go through. And uh, it's remarkable how many people struggle in terms of a, just a good, solid balance um, over a fence which therefore leads to harmony and leads to safety. Um, very few riders riding as the Americans would have ridden under Jack Kilgarf and Burton Emothy, except for some of the longer leg riders like uh, William Fox Pitt, um, Pordrick McCarthy. They're absolutely outstanding in their balance, and I think it's not surprising that their horses go better for it. So the first thing I would say, even though it's a bit of an add-on, is that people should ride smaller horses. In, in many cases, they should ride smaller horses and it will make it easier for them. But in the process of trying to, to get their balance, they ride with their still feathers too long because they need trying to get their knee further down. In the process of getting their knee further down, again, it, it, they, they lose stability. Then from the point of view of the horse, um, I mentioned my sister was in Argentina, and I was fascinated from an early stage that these horses are worked on a six-day-a-week basis. And... They do three hours in the morning and three hours in the afternoon, sometimes a little bit more. Six hours a day. And, of course, you and I have both been exposed to hunting and how long you should be uh, on a horse's back. Um, we used to hack to the meat. So we used to sometimes hack two hours to the meat at 11 o'clock, hunt all day, and hack two hours back. So come back at 7 o'clock at, at, at night time. So you'd be riding um, from 9 o'clock until 7 o'clock. Uh, uh, on a horse or pony. It's amazing how fit they were. But obviously, it's interesting to think about, well, why didn't they get sore backs? Why weren't they uncomfortable? And we used uh, different pads, just as they do in Argentina. And so you use different types of pads to ensure that there was always daylight above the spine and to, show, to, to ensure that the horse sat square on the horse's back. It didn't sit up in the front or up at the back, but you spread the load. But we also had saddles that had a wider bearing surface. So you mentioned the army, and when we look at the extraordinary number of hours and, and, and distances covered by army horses, um, the, 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 the army horses, uh, the, the army saddle had a wide bearing surface and had a little, a little extra, if you like, at the back of the saddle. But the modern, the modern uh, progression of elite saddles has been to have a smaller and smaller bearing surface, which may be fine for the short period of time that people are doing jumping round or doing a short school, but it's certainly not fine for hour, hour upon hour. And I would like to see 
uh, more Western saddles being used for the novice rider. I would like to see more of the Ameri- of the Australian stock saddle being used, which again has a wider bearing surface and has good support for the novice rider. And I, I think we will progress back again to a, wide- a wider bearing surface. And what will also happen is that from an engineering perspective, we're going to be allow- allowed more mobility in the saddle, so it's not so it's not so rigid. And that's a really interesting differentiation in that the leisure rider might be in the saddle for an awful lot longer, and therefore, by following the fashion of what Nick Skelton, what Keen O'Connor are riding in, they're not actually getting a saddle that's appropriate to what they're doing. So again, William, just to look at all of those inventions in the round, they're sort of taking the principles we were taught from the Pony Club Manual of Horsemanship and giving a simple solution so that the leisure rider can pick up these items and know that straight away they are getting something that is going to be good for them, good for their horse, without having to necessarily have the depth of understanding that led to their creation. It seems clear to me that these inventions tally very well with your desire to increase participation in the sport and also to make that participation easier for people. Uh, undoubtedly, and, and, and I am driven, absolutely driven by by the, the need to expand the number of people who ride and to sell the sport of horse riding, and from that will come more higher level horse riding. But it's 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 that way around. Um, strength at the bottom is strength at the top, and uh, we have to show that horse riding is life enhancing, and we have to make it more simple. And we don't need many things which we need to remember about saddle fitting. But there are a few key things. It's, it's all, and as regards to the riding, it's all about simplicity. Um, I, I never give a lesson without, and I, that's absolutely truthful, I never give a lesson without the three Fs. The first F, F is forwards, the second F is feel, and the third F is fifth leg. So forwards makes common sense, I think. So there are different ways you show people how to uh, get the horses to go forward and why the horse may not be going forward. It may need to lunge, etc. But at least it puts that word in their head that we can do absolutely nothing until the horse is going forward. And so, so many people, unfortunately, are taught to ride backwards as opposed to forwards. Feel is an obvious one. To begin with, you know, when I first got on a pony, I didn't know whether the movement underneath me was a trash or a canter. Over a period of time, you begin to realize which is which, and then you begin to realize... What's a good trot? What's a good trot? What's a medium trot? What's a collected trot, etc.? What's a good jump, etc., etc.? But all the time you ask people, how did it feel? So you put their awareness on trying to think about the feel underneath them. And the fifth leg connects in many different ways, it, particularly as regards the horse looking after the rider. So there's safety, and it's the, the horse which is doing the jumping, not the rider, but also about a horse will do that so much better if it goes in a natural outline with natural paces. So I'm against uh, anything which makes the horse unnatural and putting the horse in, in bad shapes and uh, rolker and gadgets, which are, which are you know, which, which, which could be in many cases considered to be cruel. Having said that, I will always make compromises for the safety of riders. So very often with a child and or in, short, in a short-term situation, you have to be creative and, and use whatever you need to use in the short term to keep the, 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 the child or the adult safer. But always the progression is to do things in a more simple fashion. As I said a little earlier on, part of that is, is riding as a sport for all and a sport for life. And I, I think we lose 
out because there is too much focus very often on elite sport and the Olympics and elite riders. And we must all remember that the vast majority of, of, of riders in the sport are pleasure riders. And it is, uh, it is just an amazing life-enhancing sport, and it's uh, just so special. It is, and we have so many examples in our sport of how exposure to horsemanship, exposure to therapeutic riding is very valuable. And you've been involved with a programme of that ilk for a very long time as well. We have Festina Lente in Bray, the organisation which I started with, a, with another lady about 35 years ago. And we now employ 35 staff. And we have 20 horses and 10 ponies and some miniature ponies. And they see about 300 people each week, 300 students, patients each week, which have some of them have the most severe challenges in life. And the association with horses makes a big difference to their life. And I believe that the association with horses makes the same difference to the lives of people whose challenges are maybe not quite so big. But, but this is it's it's sometimes lost, and I think particularly in Ireland because of the focus on breeding elite horses and the performance of elite riders, and that is a problem, and it's not so much a problem in Britain, not so much a problem in some other countries where the focus is more on everybody riding. There's a, a very famous old story about um, a man on a ship, and the ship was hit and was sinking. So he was on the ship. He had a whole lot of gold bars. So he went and harnessed these, tied these gold bars to his middle, and then jumped into the sea. And of course, the weight of the gold bars took him down to the bottom of the ocean, which is where they found him a period of time later. So the question is, did he have the gold or did the gold have him? And I think we get things in reverse. We let our egos and let our competitions, ambitions, weigh us down to such an extent that we no longer enjoy the sport and we no longer encourage other people to ride simply for pleasure. And I think it's an absolutely fundamental point which we need to work at all the time to ensure that the structure for pleasure riding and the access for pleasure riding receives the top priority. So I would like to see greenways, which have been so successful in Ireland, not just for bicycle riders but for horse riders now insurance is a big problem but i think you know these covid19 times it's even more important that we say come on now we've got to be work in a more cooperative fashion we've got to help people get jobs and retain jobs and build industries and part of that is making it easier for people to do outdoor sports and not having the problems that we have with insurance my sister lives in argentina and there, the vast majority of people, albeit not riding on the road, but the vast majority of people ride bareback and without hats, and riding is not looked upon as a dangerous activity. Now, I'm not suggesting that all of our riders should ride bareback and without hats. What I am suggesting is that horse riding, even horse-driven riding, is not as dangerous as many people would suggest, and that we horses having sufficient work and with the right facilities we can both reduce costs and open access to many thousands more riders. And Ireland, with its space, its forestry, its green spaces, we're ideally situated to do that. That's a brilliant long-term goal. In my head, when I think about sport horses, when I think about the industry, I think about riding. But 
There is more to it than that, especially when we're thinking about participation and access at the lowest level. We, we underestimate, we undervalue um, working with horses from the ground. Uh, it, it can just an association with horses. And we, as I said, we have two little ponies, two miniature ponies at Festina Vente, and we go around to hospices, we go around to children's homes, uh, we go around to places where they, they can't actually leave the home, leave the house. And just the contact with those horses, with those ponies, it's a big difference. And it makes a, a provable difference. This is not just somebody's opinion, because they uh, gauge all the time how people's responses are, how bright they feel, as beyond scales of 10. And the uh, awareness of and happiness to their lives is, is a big difference, too, with the contact with horses. And uh, I use a phrase that all of training needs to be a, a mixture of effort and delight. So that, that delight side has to come in all the time. And we forget that. And so it can be delightful just having contact with horses from the ground. It definitely is. And something, you know, living in London, I miss myself and take every opportunity to talk to a rider's horse if I'm interviewing them at the same time. Moving on from that, William, I'd like to take this opportunity to maybe take your temperature on where eventing sport is. I mean, it's a fantastic moment for our riders, our owners, our trainers, our breeders to have had championship medals at the World Equestrian Games and then latterly again at the European Championships last year. It's a goal we set ourselves for a very long time. We were actually pipped to the post by the Dutch, who took their medal back in 2014. And looking at them, my question is this. Is what we have at the moment sustainable? Can we keep this up, or have we just reached a peak? We all have to play the cards that we're dealt. And the key, key thing is those who are most, most successful make the best of, of, of the cards that they're dealt. And I think that's why Sally Corscadden has been so good because she's concentrated on the strengths that we have and she's brought people together and she's said, yeah, yes, it's possible. It's not a perfect world, but yes, it's possible. Now, if we have that attitude, continue to have that attitude and continue to support each other, um, uh, that'll make a huge difference. But um, we will never fulfill our potential consistently unless all the various sections of the horse world work together. And at the lowest level, if you like, or the youngest level, we have the Pony Club. And I think that's an area where, where huge help, investment, support is needed to make it easier because it's the young people who are going to go on to, uh, go on to the higher levels. And we need to ensure that the way that the young people are taught is as simple as possible. I keep coming back to this word simple, but it's as simple as possible and positive as possible. I mean, just recently, because of the COVID situation, there have been uh, tri-eventing uh, competitions where people have done their dressage and their cross-country gear. Young people have done their dressage and their cross-country gear, then their show jumping and gone on straight on to the cross-country. Now, that may sound, well, that's not a big thing, is it? But it's been hugely popular with the young people. It's made life a little easier. It's made their sport a little bit more like other sports, as opposed to having silly rules and regulations, and silly clothing, um, which has no real purpose. And, 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 the, and the sport is, people say, well, I like the tradition of the sport. Undoubtedly, there are people who like the tradition. But equally, the vast majority of people coming into the sport, they want a sport that appears easy to do and, and 
bears comparison with any other sport that, 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 that they might be able to do, given the interest. That's really interesting about the tri-eventing. And I mean, I couldn't agree more with what you say about how we must nurture and develop the youth so that we have our high-performance riders of the future. In terms of horses, in terms of the number of five-star horses we have in the world, the number of times they can run in a year, we have those six top-level events. Four in Europe, the Australian, one in Adelaide, the Kentucky three-day, supporting their particular markets. But we were looking this year at adding another one to the calendar and adding it in the autumn as well, of course, championship season. Do you think there's necessarily a demand for that? Or actually, are we selling ourselves short as a sport when you consider that in a normal year, there are many more than 100 five-star level show jumping shows? The figures show that there is a, a reduction in the number of elite horses. And, and certainly you have to ask yourself why. Um, part of that, as regards eventing, part of that scenario, I think, is the type of horses that we use. Because the, the majority of horses... Um, do not have sufficient blood, do not have sufficient, uh, are not able to go at the right speed, um, are not able to go sufficiently within themselves to be safe at the higher levels. So that is a problem, but I think it is being addressed. I think people are looking more at quality horses as regards to the eventing. Um, as regards to the, the, the show jumping, you know, we just have to be careful, the same as the Grand Prix motor racing, that it doesn't become all about about how much money you have as opposed to um, broadening, the, broadening the base and allowing a, a wider group of people in. And uh, We all know the history of horse riding is that it's always attracted some people with vast resources, but at the same time, it's attracted probably even more people with minimal resources that, you know, they, they almost live out of the back of the truck or, or, or their, their horse and their, 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 their home are as one, and uh, get, they get huge pleasure from it. Now, we must be careful to leave horse riding open as a, as a sport for all, truly as a sport for all. And I think the Germans do a great job because they have, uh, they have state riding schools in all the towns. Um, the state gets involved in the sport. In France, uh, horse riding is, number, is the number three sport um, uh, statistically for women and uh, we need to we need to keep all the time building up our base and making sure that doors stay open um, that there will always be the, the the occasional extravagant competition that interests people and gets uh, column inches in the papers but that the heart of the sport is is the, the middle ground of the sport I do agree but I'm going to talk a little bit more about high performance Next year, with the Olympics being deferred to 2021, an early decision was taken to cancel the European Championships, which seems to me like a very much a missed opportunity. Do you think it would be possible to have the Olympics, which of course is only going to occupy three horse and rider combinations, and still have a very, very high-level European Championships in 2021? Yeah, I don't, I don't have any strong feelings apart from... To you know the the um, in Moscow the equestrian side. You know when there was the when the boycott, people don't you know pe- people forget about the horses and riders that won those championships, which is which is which is a shame, especially as there was Irish, Irish horses involved. But um, I don't have any strong feelings on it. I think that I think to bring squad together 
at any level, junior, young rider or senior, to have a, a representative championship and to have it well run and to have uh, everything stated above board, transparent about the level that it's at and who's it's for, it is nothing but good. And I think, yes, it would be possible to have a European championship. Yeah, it does feel like we should be able to, especially, as I said, with only three combinations for qualified nations going to the Olympic Games and not all of the biggest nations in the sport qualified for those Olympic Games either. William, finally, after, you know, these two episodes of chatting to you about your inventions, about choreographing Ride On at the 2003 Europeans, about so many years in coaching and being a published author on a number of occasions in our sport, and of course, the fabulous breeding successes, all coming from your grounding in Cornwall. What, if you could summarise it, what are you proudest of in your career? Uh, I can tell you that in a few years' time when I work at my other projects. Now I'm not. I'm not trying to be trying to be smart in any way. Um, I suppose. Um, I suppose what I'm proudest of is to encourage people to look at things in different ways and to bring new areas of uh, connect new areas of expertise um, to, to the equestrian world. But again, when you that's full circle, it's exactly how it used to be. So, if you like, it's uh, it's fighting the cause um, uh, of the all-round knowledge, fighting the cause of everybody being different and respecting everybody being different, and all horses are different. Now, that's that is so it's so so important that we tend to treat everybody the same, and increasingly we tend to teach treat every horse as the same, and it's totally ridiculous. I mean, I, I, I love a good cob. I love a good pony. I love a racehorse. I love all different types of horses. But to treat them all the same is ridiculous. And I think that is, that's, a, that's a failing that we have within the industry. So I suppose at the end of my life, if I can say that I have encouraged people to, to, to value their individual horses and their individual ponies and their individual people that they need to respect differences, that, that, that I hope may be the biggest thing that I do. And the, 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 the expression that I use time and time again, which uh, I would also like to think can go through all the areas I work in, is in, in, in imperial units, yard by yard, life is hard, inch by inch, life's a cinch and so i encourage people to progress inch by inch and in horse sports what is so wonderful is you don't look at people like a gymnast or a, or, or a person in the swimming world and say or a person in the golfing world and say well they're 18 and they haven't done this so far so i'll never make it in the horse world you can say well with a horse all sorts of possibilities are open to you and and that's that's what makes it so special you know it again i come back to a sport for life. Probably you know somebody who was in the pony club uh, with you and your brother um, is Aidan Kyo. Now he's in his 50s and he's on the list for the Tokyo Olympics. But I think that he does things at a very high level. And I started working with him when he was 11. And I just think it's wonderful that somebody can be at that level at that age and genuinely be one of the elite riders and combinations in the country. And white horse, horse sports are special. 
Oh, William, you have certainly made great use of the opportunities to make horse sports special through your varied involvements with the industry for so many people. Thank you very much for that. And thank you for chatting to us for these two episodes. They've been really, really enlightening. Don't forget, as ever, a huge amount of advice and information on the HSI website at horsesportireland.ie. Remember, the sport and breeding departments at Horsesport Ireland, whilst working remotely, are still open and able to help with any renewals or registrations required. And there continues to be news and updates on the current COVID-19 guidance and details of the financial support available. So thanks for joining me, John Kyle, and I look forward to talking to you again on the next Horse Sport Ireland podcast.